Professor David Crystal's a world authority on, on the development of English, especially on its future. Um, for, uh, Professor Crystal, I rather naughtily suggested that our, our station announcer, our Radio 4 announcer, might uh, change THs to Zs, because I know that that's one of the predictions you've made. Uh, t- Tongue-in-cheek or quite seriously, do you think the th noise will go? Oh, tongue between teeth, you mean, rather yes. than tongue-in-cheek. <laughs> um, well... What it will go to is the question. It could go to a z, like the Germans do, and they say, this is the interesting thing, and so on. But it could go to an f, you see, which is what the Cockneys have been doing yeah. for hundreds of years. I mean, there's no magic about the th. It, it came along from Germanic, uh, and one group in England decided they liked it, so they stuck with it. But lots of regional accents, of course, haven't used it. Yes. So there's no... You could say the same about the k sound. Is Absolutely. It? Yeah, you can say about any sound, really. Yeah. I mean, which sound's going to come into fashion and which one's going to go out? And also, I, I think the not just sounds, but um, parts of words. Already in speech, for example, we have um, going to in the sense of uh, moving towards. I'm going to Doncaster. Mm. But there's um, going to in the sense of fu- intent, intent yeah, future. Yeah. I'm... I'm I'm going to see it. So gonna I'm gonna exactly. Ooh. Gonna is now really a word, isn't it? And wanna and yeah, and, and wanna. Yeah. And some people may say that's laziness, but actually that's how the future tenses were formed in Spanish and French, with the two verbs, uh, donner and avoir, put together became donnerai, um, and and our gonna. I'm. We'd actually say I'm I'm gonna Doncaster would sound like. What, what is to Doncaster? It's yeah, not, yes. it's not, how do you do that? How yeah. do you Doncaster? I'm going to yeah, Norwich. People always talk about this in terms of laziness, whereas in actual fact, it's simply a more efficient way of communicating. I mean, yeah. the, you know, that, that speech is there to enable us to talk to each other and in the most comfortable way possible. And if there are shortcuts to be made, people will make them. Now, the only time when people really get worried about this is when they you get onto a rather formal footing and people insist, ever since the 18th century anyway, that well, even a bit before, with remember, Holofernes in Love's Labour's Lost, we must pronounce every letter. And do you know, there are people who leave out the B in debt. They should be saying <laughs> debt and things like this, you see. So that trend has always been there, that we must speak according to the but written language. But we know language. Shakespeare, who is, of course, the greatest lord of language we have. We know what he thought of Holofernes. Absolutely. He, he uh, an uh, idiot. That's right. And so yeah. you get that critical reaction to it right from the 16th century down to the present day. But the attitude is still there. People do have this un underlying feeling that, that every sound that we produce has to somehow or other relate to every letter, and if there is any speech tendency that collapses the words, this has to be put down to laziness, whereas, in fact, it's simply an alternative, more efficient medium. Yes, in, in, in that sense, it would be like calling a river lazy. People do look at language as if it has to improve or deteriorate. Um, it's like going down to the seaside and watching the, the sea come in and go out every day and saying, you know, it's coming in, going out, oh dear, and tomorrow it might be different. I mean, is this a better thing or a worse? It's, it's just going in and out is the tide. Yes. And it's the same with language. Um, but I suppose people um, are justified in noting at least that the, the rate of change appears to be accelerating. The graph is going up, certainly as far as English is concerned, and it's internationalism. I mean, how many people spoke the language we are now conversing in, say, 600 years ago? Uh, Well, certainly um, we know around about 1500, 1600, there were 4 million speakers of English in England, of course. We have to make the distinction now. There weren't that many in Wales. There weren't that many in Cornwall. There weren't that many in the Manx area up in the Isle of Man. There weren't that many in Scotland or Ireland. But in England, there were about 4 million. Um, 
And even there, of course, uh, that's, the, that's the population of England. Even there, you may remember in the 16th century, huge numbers of immigrants coming in, one of the fastest-growing immigrant periods in history, apart from today yes. uh, or recent times. And so one doesn't actually expect that all those four million spoke English very well, but, you know, four million max right. for and, 1600. And now in, in the early part of the 21st century, how many speak English to some extent, would you say? Well, uh, if you distinguish between sort of first language speakers and foreign language speakers, there's about 400 million or so first language speakers. English is a mother tongue or father tongue, depending on your mm -hmm. point of view, uh, around the world. And about five times as many who speak English as a second or a foreign language. So we're talking about two billion people, you know, a third of the world's population, really. Uh, the important point to notice is that for every one native speaker of English, there are now four or five non-native speakers of English. So the centre of gravity of the language has shifted away from the native speaker to the non-native speaker with interesting consequences, mm -hmm. probably, for the language in due course. It will presumably always be called... English, that's just, or at least not always, but that, in the might. foreseeable future. Well, foreseeable yeah. future. But that doesn't mean mm. the centre of gravity will be London, where we're speaking from. Not at all. I mean, numbers always count in language, so the majority usages are going to be shaping the language more than ever before. Um, and what you call a language, of course, is a moot point. Um, it, it was called English about a thousand years ago, and that's lang that label has stuck. But as you go around the world, you will find alternative labels being suggested for what might be developing as an English family of languages. If you go to Singapore, for instance, they talk a lot there about Singlish, which is Singaporean English, which is a mixture of English and Chinese, you know. Go up to uh, north of the border and, and you'll get people saying, I don't speak English, I speak Scots, yeah. you know. And, and so you, and they're using a different label. And, you, and, you know, a thousand years ago, who would ever have dared predict that in a thousand years' time, Latin would no longer be the force it had then? A thousand years from now, is English going to be the force it has now? Ooh. Yes, you can, never, you can never make predictions that strongly, but certainly, in, as far as our lifetimes are concerned, it seems that technology, to some extent, is one of the things that's driving English forward. If it were a brand, it is one of the things mm. that's driving the brand, mm. simply the fact that the Internet has been more or less written in English. Of course, it happens that it was an Englishman who invented the World Wide Web and, mm. and its particular grammar, and, uh, and America, obviously, is the, is the leader in the, in the, in, in the Internet field. With the well, it was. Um, and, well, I mean, the companies who, you know, that drive knows? the Internet, the Googles, yeah. the Apples, yeah. the Microsofts are all yeah. American. But, but, the, but the latest stats on, on the Internet suggest that it has become already a pretty multilingual environment and it's going to increasingly become so. When, when you look at the proportion of people in China, for example, that are online, which is still a very low proportion compared, say, with the United States. And then you see that Chinese is already, you know, nipping at the heels of English at the top of the lists of, uh, of, of web pages and websites. You know, 10 years' time, Chinese probably will have overtaken in English, not in terms of quantity of pages, but in terms of, you know, number of people using and things of that right. kind. So just to be clear, how many if one can use the word users in, the, in, in a computer sense, how many users of English do you estimate there are as a number in the world? Um, well, that figure of two billion is probably the, the upper bound here. Right. So we're talking about anybody able to communicate in a reasonably domestic way. In other words, not necessarily uh, carry out a, a BBC interview or something in the language, but, but certainly able to chat about it. And if you get into trouble, get yourself out of trouble using that language. Now, the reason why the figures are so difficult to be sure about is that the two big players here 
have, we have very little information about. The two big players are India and China. Mm. Um, nobody knows how many people speak English in India. The estimates vary enormously. The, su the, the a suggestion in a survey a few years ago is that a third of the population of India is now capable of carrying on a conversation in English. That's 350, 400 million people. That's more than the entire rest of the English-speaking <laughs> native world combined. And then you go to China where in the early 2000s, people were saying 250 million people speak English in China of a sort. Uh, and they were saying, I'm going to double that number by the time of the Olympics. So that's 500 million in China now? Is that true? I mean, it's difficult to know, but yeah. given the emphasis that was there in the last 10 years, I wouldn't be at all surprised. So, you know, simply add India and China together, and you've got two huge melting pots of the language now, which are bound to have an effect on it globally in the long run. And would you say that English at least has the advantage as a, an Indo-European phonetically scripted language as opposed to uh, uh, the way that the Chinese is? It has an advantage in, in technology that it seems to be that technology finds it easier to make uh, a language like English or indeed Italian or many, um, many others. Yeah, but that, that's just a temporary thing uh, of the Internet being so recent. Uh, in fact, this year, 2010, is the year when, for the first time, um, the Internet is going to allow in URLs, uh, that is the www bit at the yeah. top of the screen, uh, uh, scripts like Arabic and, and Chinese and Russian and so on. That hasn't been possible hitherto. It's going to be possible soon. Uh, so, and one says, soon, always with the Internet, because you never know what's going to happen next year. So um, I, I don't believe that the Chinese writing system as such is in the an long term no. inhibited. It has been up until now yeah. because, yes, you're absolutely right, Internet was devised with the Roman alphabet specifically in mind. Right. So to some extent, so far, the success, the explosion of English has, has been um, remarkable, but it isn't inevitable that it will increase at the same rate. It could easily actually now level out two opinions here. Some people say it's a snowball and it can only get bigger and it has to be said that uh, a lot of the evidence around the world is of the snowball getting bigger because, you know, the Chinese are not that bothered about having Chinese um, a world language. They all want to learn English. So th th that's the evidence there. Um, on the other hand, only a fool would, would say that a language, once it's achieved an international status, is going to last forever because the history of language is that that has never happened. Um, you know, once upon a time it was going to be Greek, another time it was going to be Latin, you know, another time it was going to be French. At least, um, can I tie you down to, ma to make a prediction, even if you, you, you want to, to dress it in understandable caveats. <laughs> yeah, caveat is my middle name. <laughs> yes. uh, it's going to stay for the foreseeable future, by which I mean our lifetime and the lifetime after that. It's another hundred years. Yeah, um, I, I can't see English being moved from its position. But um, a language becomes an international and a global language for one reason only, uh, and it's nothing to do with the phonetics of it or the structure of it or anything. It's the power of the people who speak it. And so it all asking future questions about language is asking future questions about society. So, yeah, we know the forces that have kept English as a global language, America and so on, British Empire and all of this. But Spanish is the world's fastest growing language at the moment. And if, say, South and Central America became in some sense a global powerhouse, as they might, um, then Spanish would surely take off. It doesn't take too much imagination to see a scenario where Arabic might become a global language if certain things happened. And so we could go around and choose big languages, reflect on the power that has made them big, and, and 
speculate about whether that power could increase. And of course, another driver, aside from power and society, which of course is true, and maybe it follows the power of, of a society, its empire, either industrial or military, is the cultural um, uh, empire, the, the cultural colonization, which we've seen through Hollywood and uh, literature and popular culture, pop music and many other things. English has, has been the language that's been born on those tides as well. And Absolutely. In the 20th century and the late 19th century, that was the dominant tide. You've got the industrial, technological, industrial revolution period, which made English the language of science. You've got the economic period, which you mustn't forget, the 19th century, where the money markets took off and money talks, and the language it was talking was the dollar and the pound. Uh, and that's still a very important driver for language to, uh, acquisition anywhere. And then, absolutely, the 20th century, cultural power. I mean, it's it's amazing. Every significant cultural development in the 20th century, you could argue, either started in the medium of English or was immediately facilitated by the medium of English. At the last point, I mean cinema, for instance, started in France, but within 20 years, where was it, you know? Yes. And although the World Wide Web was invented in French-speaking Switzerland, it was in <laughs> the words are World Wide and Web, and it was an, an English invention in that sense. Three too. English words, yes. And robot, although that's a Czech word, the idea not only of language spreading out through machines, but machines themselves becoming language competent. Is that, a, is, is that an insane idea? And if they did so, would English, because it would likely happen in the next 100 years, be the language which was experimented on? Well, if technology develops to that extent, there's no reason whatsoever why one particular language should be privileged. Uh, in, indeed, Google are already saying that in two years' time, they're going to have some sort of Babelfish uh, effect that is going to allow, um, through smartphone, Android phones, uh, you know, person-to-person -person automatic translation. I believe it when I see it, yeah. uh, because machine translation at the moment is at a pretty low level when you, you know, yeah. try one of these automatic systems online. But oh, hundred years down the line, and, and I wouldn't be at all surprised to find amazing developments in instantaneous spoken and written translation, at which point um, you've got a 2001 Dave machine there, um, and it can speak any language you want. We know because we can go back in the past through books. It's one of the glories of literature and indeed ordinary writing of any kind, we know that we can understand what people said 200 years ago. Um, there are variations and elegances that are different to our own elegances or inelegances. But suppose we got into a TARDIS and went 200 years into the future, staying in the same place. Do you think we'd be able to understand how people spoke? Based on the past, then, well, you can go back further than 200 years. Go back to Shakespeare's time. 95% of Shakespeare's vocabulary is familiar to us today. You know, there is 5% or so that but is difficult. We have lived with it, whereas if Shakespeare mm. came into this room now, mm. how much would he understand us? Ah, well, of course, that's, that's, the language has increased in size enormously since then. I mean, the total number of words available to Shakespeare was probably only 150,000 or so, whereas now we've got a million and a half words in English, so it wouldn't be fair, really. And that, that, mind you, that is the point about understanding the language 200 years in the future. Uh, remember, understanding language means three things. Uh, it means understanding the vocabulary, understanding the grammar, and understanding the pronunciation, or, of course, it's written down version. Now, there's no evidence that pronunciation is going to change out of all recognition, so that any more than 400 years ago, we can't understand the way Shakespeare would have sounded then. Um, grammar? 
5% of the language has changed since Shakespeare's time, a few odd grammatical constructions, and I expect in 200 years' time there'll be another 5% of change. Mm. Uh, you can sense some of the changes going through at the moment, um, and, and they will probably develop. So, mm. you know, there are changes of this kind, but it's vocabulary where you see the main change in a language most directly. And um, that's where it gets very difficult to predict. Shakespeare would have trouble today because of the, well, a million words that have come into the language that are simply reflecting a culture, a technology, a society that was outside his imagination. Uh, well, perhaps that's going too far, certainly outside his experience, not yeah. his imagination. Yeah. Uh, now, Certainly if you said to him, uh, I'll Facebook you later, he would find that very <laughs> odd, despite knowing the word face and the word book extremely well. So, so, yes. <laughs> so now we have to predict what are the technological developments going to be over the next 200 years that will generate another 500,000 words in English that um, we won't understand. And that, of course, is one of the things that science fiction writers like doing, don't they? And they rarely get it right, but it's well, they, fun. Well, they, they don't usually dare. You know, the one amazing thing about science fiction writing is that you take off and you go uh, for light years into the future or into the past or wherever, and, and you have generation after generation of people being born on board and things like this, and they're still speaking the same English language <laughs> they had when they took off in the first place. That's, true. That's very true. Anyway, we, I could talk about this forever in, uh, uh, until the language changed. Uh, Professor Crystal, thank you so much. Oh, it's my pleasure.